Welcome to The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling. Every week on The Brand is Female, I speak with women who are leaders, entrepreneurs, change makers, and creators. I believe that by sharing our mutual stories as women, we will find inspiration to unlock our own potential, align with our true path, and make our voices heard. In today's episode, I'm introducing you to three inspiring women. The first one was actually not a guest on this podcast because she left this earth in 2007, but she is the star of a new documentary movie called Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. So who was Molly Ivins exactly? All right, I have come to cheer y'all up about the state of politics in this great nation. I know you think that uh, it is looking dark and gloomy. Cheer up, it could always be worse. You could be living in Texas. Well, she was a columnist, first for the Minneapolis Tribune as the first female reporter covering police matters, then at the Texas Observer in the early 70s. And then the New York Times recruited her. I had been asked to join the New York Times. They wanted Molly for the unique voice, the iconoclast, but they wanted her to fit into the Times. As we say in Texas, that dog don't hunt. Damn, it's good to be back home again. Molly moved back to the Dallas Times Herald. Dubbed Six Feet of Texas Trouble, who took on the good old boy corruption wherever she found it, most notably through her razor-sharp attacks against President Bush, father and son, although the progressives didn't avoid her fire either. Her wit left both left-wing and right-wing laughing and craving more of her columns. Molly knew the Bill of Rights was in danger, and she said polarizing people is a good way to win an election and a good way to wreck a country. Now, her words could not ring more true today. Molly Ivins appeared in papers all over the country. How many legendary print journalists are there? I'm a Texan. I drive a pickup truck. I drink beer. I hunt. I'm a liberal. So what? The two other women on this episode are Janice Engel and Carlisle Vandervoot, respectively the courageous director and one of the courageous producers of the film Race Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. With amazing timing, which Janice and Carlisle have come to discover may very well have been Molly's doing, the film released earlier this year in North America and is slated to hit the UK just in time for US elections. Molly would have really enjoyed that one. Before going to my conversation with Janice and Carlisle, let's hear a message from our partners. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women entrepreneurs achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can support you. Hi there. First of all, Ava, thank you so much for having us be on your podcast. It really is uh, wonderful for us to be able to jump the pond and uh, you know share Molly Ivins with the rest of the world. Um, I am a... Uh, a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, I am the producer and director of Raise Hell, the Life and Times of Molly Ivins. Uh, but I'm also a professor and I teach. And uh, basically young minds from all over the world. But um, now I've been making documentary films, predominantly other films, but documentary films for a number of years. I also edit and I'm just a filmmaker. I was also a showrunner in television made lots of doc series that moved towards reality programming, which um, I did just a little bit, but my heart is in real life, real stories, real people. And I'll throw it to my, my producing partner, the real Texan, y'all. 
Thank you so much, Eva, for having us on. I'm Carlisle Vandervoort. I'm in Houston, and I am one of the producers on Raisel, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. And um, I'm also an artist and a sacred beekeeper. Oh, wow. I love that. We'll have to get into that part of your resume. That's interesting. Uh, pleasure meeting you both. Thank you so much for joining me on The Brennan's Female today. And we obviously want to hear about uh, the movie uh, on, on Molly Ivins that, uh, that you have worked on. But before we get to that, I want to start by asking you uh, what I always ask my guests when we start these conversations. And we're going to go back in time a little bit. I want to talk about your journey up to this point. And you are both uh, involved in, in filmmaking uh, with a few other projects. So I'd like to hear about, um, you know, going back to being a young girl. Did you already know you'd have a career in film or was that something that came uh, as an idea later to you? And maybe just sum up your journey up to this point. So maybe we'll go with Janice first. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, I'm originally from New York. I live in Los Angeles now. I have actually lived two thirds of my life in LA because I came to go to school to go to university out here. But I actually my love of film started when I was a really, really little girl, um, because my father loved movies so much. And my dad was a product of uh, he grew up during the Depression, the Great Depression. He grew up in, uh, was born in the Bronx. Um, he served in uh, World War II. He served. He was in uh, the the European theater. He was stationed in France, and so so much of my trajectory and my fascination with film was because of him. When I was really little, I remember on particularly cold or rainy Sunday afternoons, my father would say, "Ooh, ooh, Janice, Gunga Din is on." <gasps> There's a great Charlie Chaplin movie. Oh, oh, he would get really excited. He'd make this big deal about it. And it he would say, he would, he would say, you have to watch it. And so he had a big armchair, and it, this is so early 60s. He they had a big console, very madman, you know, with the stereo built in, with the AM FM stereo, the television, mm -hmm. you know, furniture, Magnavox. It was, you know, and and um, the doors would open and we would watch this show. If you're from the East Coast, you will know it was called The Million Dollar Movie. And, oh, yeah. and it would be on in, on Sunday afternoons. And they would the theme, the theme song was the theme from Tara from Gone with the Wind, which of course I didn't learn until I was like 10 or 11 when I finally saw Gone with the Wind. But it that theme song was always meant movies. And so mm -hmm. my father would um, imagine he would sit back in his armchair, he would cross his leg like, you know, over one knee. And then I was three and I would stick my two legs through his crossed leg and lean back in his arm. And together we would watch old movies from, you know, like Gunga Din. I, was, I had no idea what Gunga Din was. Um, to uh, Westerns, to uh, Cary Grant movies and Catherine Hepburn's screwball comedy, all sorts of stuff. And I just... Loved it. And it, it was, I believe, my bonding with my dad. But I mm. loved the magic of the golden era of Hollywood. I went from Charlie Chaplin all the way. I mean, screwball comedies. I became obsessed and I would go to the library with my mother and take out, you know, she'd go to the adult section. I go to the children's section. But very soon I started to go in to look up biographies. 
And I, and I, my thick with allowance money, I think I bought a biography about Humphrey Bogart. I just was a kid who really loved movies. And my father made movies. He eight millimeter. He was always filming. So, mm. and taking photographs. So I, he gave me my first Brownie camera when I was seven and I actually was a Brownie and I took a self portrait. It's hilarious with a Brownie camera in my Brownie uniform. Very, wow. Very thematic early on. <laughs> and I have these pictures. I have pictures of. Me. I was going to say, I do have, you still have them? I have pictures. If you need pictures, I can probably, I probably can scan them and, and send them. So I just, um, I developed a love and an, and an obsession so much. So Carlisle's heard the story. So forgive me, Car. But when I was um, of a certain age, you know, elementary school, we would get the New York times and I would look in the Sunday arts and leisure to see what movies were going to be on TV. And I would scan for my favorites, Catherine Hepburn, Greta Garbo, Humphrey Bogart. I had a whole Clark Gable. I had a whole list of people I wanted to see, but particularly a lot of women uh, actresses who were really strong. I and mean, Greta Garbo was rare. Greta Garbo mm -hmm. was amazing. So I would circle them and then I would kind of gauge it, but I would basically, if it was like a major film I needed to see, I would feign being sick to stay home. Okay. I could watch those movies and that obsession kept up. And so I would always go to the cinema to see something. And then as I got to be a teenager, I went to places to go see like, you know, Frank Zappa's, you know, 200 motels, weird things that my mother said, you can't go to that theater. You're, that's in a bad neighborhood. I would do all sorts of things to try to go to see films to the point of when I was in high school, I would take, I grew up on Long Island. I would take the Long Island Railroad. We were straight shot to the city. I would sneak into the city and go see movies at the um, Carnegie Cinema and the, and, and the Bleecker Street Cinema. And I mean, I, I, I did a lot of stuff like that because I was obsessed. I was determined. I just loved old movies. So, so that, that passion was clear from the start. And then tell me about uh, turning that into a career. Did you go to filmmaking school? Yeah, I, I did back in the dinosaur era. Um, I did. And I, I was originally, I told my father and my mother, I, but I, said, I said, I originally wanted to be an actress. I did a lot of plays. I was never part of the theater group. I was always other, the, always the outsider. Um, but I then started directing some things in high school. And I said, oh, this is, this is who I am. It made much more sense to me. And um, so, but I did tell my father at one point, I think it was like 14, that I want to go to Juilliard. And he said, he like laughed. He said, no, you're not. <laughs> no, uh -uh. You need something to fall back on. So I started mm -hmm. to look at, well, film. And by the time I was 16, I, I was set on film. I was wanted to be a director. I wanted to do film. And I wasn't going to go to a communications program. I wanted cinema. And so right. there were only so many places you could go. And at the time I wanted to get as far away from my family as possible. So I went 3000 miles away. I got accepted into USC. Uh, now it's called, you know, University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. Back then it was called the USC Cinema Department. Mm. Um, and I got in, I was 17, barely 18. And I was really young. I was amazed that I got in. And um yeah, I went to film school, but we were, you know, I, we were, it wasn't what it is now. I mean, we were cutting on uh, 16 mil. I, first I made super eight films, 16 millimeter. We were cutting on movieolas and flatbeds and all the money that the school eventually got from Lucas and Spielberg came like eight, nine years after I graduated. It was always being promised, but you know, right. we were the poor, right. we were the poor bastard cousins to the 
the, the USC Performing Arts Department. I think the, the horse that was brought out at football games, Traveler the Horse, the budget and upkeep for Traveler was bigger than the cinema department budget. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah. Well, you're part, you're part of the OGs, basically. Yeah, I totally, totally. But that's what, that's how I got started. And, you know, I stayed in LA and I just, mm -hmm. you know, always did it my own way and wanted to make the films I wanted to make. And I fell backwards into making documentaries because I never set out to make documentaries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Carlisle, tell me about your journey to cinema. Well, I was <clears throat> also a huge movie lover as a kid and wound up at film school in Austin also. Um, left for New York and worked in the business for about five years. I wound up producing TV commercials. I mean, I started out as a gopher and then I was on in-house at Macy's doing their commercials. And then I just realized it wasn't my thing. So I mm -hmm. left the business and moved to Los Angeles and learned the PR trade. And so for a number of years, um, I was for a long time, I was not in the business. In fact, I got back and, and, and along the way I met Janice. So Janice and I've known each other at this point for 33 years. And, um, and I started making art and I went to grad school late and um, moved back to Houston and then made art and started keeping bees. And James Egan, our third producing partner, he saw the play and called Janice and then they decided they were gonna do it. And then they suddenly went, oh God, we need to text it. So let's get Carlisle involved. So that's really how I got to the film. Mm -hmm. Because they realized, as they both said, James said, I'm a carpetbagger from Baltimore. And Janice said, I'm a Long Island Jew. We don't speak Texan. You do. <laughs> so they needed a Texas. They needed a Texan. They needed a Texan. Mm -hmm. They realized they needed somebody that knew how to talk to Texans in the oil business and ask them for money. Right. I knew how to do. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and it was fun. I mean, it was fun. Plus, I like group projects. So this was, you know, when you're a producer, it's a group project. So, And I'm curious, so uh, going back in time a little bit earlier in your career, when you when you first started making movies, there, there weren't that many women directors, producers, you know, who were your role models? And if, if you didn't have role models in the film industry, what, what was it that was going through your mind that, you know, that taught you that you could go full steam ahead, even though that wasn't necessarily a role for a woman just yet? I don't, you know what? I didn't have role models per se, in, because there weren't. I mean, yes, whenever like uh, Claudia Weil made Girlfriends with Melanie Mehron, I saw that, you know, in the mid, mid to late 70s, there were a few films that would come, Desert Hearts, there were a few films that would come out, um, uh, Lynn Littman's film, uh, that were directed by women. And there were films that were made like Dorothy Arzner when I was in film school and stuff, but it didn't, that wasn't the reason. I always knew I was going to direct. I mean, I always knew I wanted to make films. I wanted to take pictures. I want, you know, originally I wanted to do photography and I always did photography. That's kind of like a meditation for me. And at one point somebody said, why don't you do this? And your photographs are amazing. But I, it was more like a, it's a, that's, a, that's my art. That's kind of film is too, but it's my profession. Photography is a kind of a, a meditative art for me. I go into a state of meditation. It's me in 
it's just a whole different thing, but it's a visual thing. I just always, this is who I am. I, I can't, there was, you know, I never looked at myself like I can't do this. I'm going to do this. And any time I, here's the thing, you know, Hollywood works in a certain way. And when I got out of film school, they, back then they never prepared you for getting a gig. And, you know, there's, and it's the same thing I tell my students now, you know, you think you're going to get out of school and you're going to start directing dream on. I said, right. it, it's like point, you know, like this, the, the, the molecule at the tip of my pinky, that's, that's the chance of your getting, you know, to, to, to make your own film. You can in this day an age of how much stuff is available do it. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that when I got out of school. I would borrow somebody's equipment. I said, oh, this person has a camera. Can I borrow that camera? I would pull things to get like a producer, not even being aware that that's what I was per se doing. But I thought, right. oh, this would be cool to do. And it was always doc- documentary. Yes. So at the time when I was coming up, there was p- a lot of punk was happening, a lot of new wave. I just started filming, ba- I mean, just filming them, taking photographs, doing stuff. My last student film at USC, I made with the, the band, the motels, Martha Davis and the motels. I just always brought in real life. And so it's like, I fell backwards into it. I started, I also edited a lot of music videos started. So I just threw myself into it. And I, I was supposed to be the, you know, always I started to realize that there are no women doing this. And I, as I was in my career or trying to be, I never could play the game the way you're supposed to. I tried to get a, a, a real, that kind of a job, you know, like where you work your way up. And my father said, go get hired at Disney. That wasn't me. I wasn't, I'm a creative. So the gig economy, I was doing it 35 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. it didn't occur to me at the time because I just always wanted to do my thing. So I would pull things together and I would find money and I would, you know, I would, I just by hook or crook did it. So mentors, yes, I've always had strong women mentors along the way. They may have weren't right. necessarily filmmakers, but they were teachers, teachers that I had in mm-hmm. some way or another. Whether it was my teachers in high school, there were two women particularly who really guided me. My mother was sick a lot. So they were, it was I, I looked for strong, you know, strong um, women role models who, because my, because my mother was, was ill. Um, and that's, you know, that stayed with me, but specifically in the film business, um, you know, I've mentored tons of people, but when I look back, no, I just went ahead and did it. I mean, I always get, got advice and I would always, you know, ask, those questions, but I think I, my, my wife reminds me that I said 25 years ago that I was going to be a teacher. And I said, really? And then another friend told me the same thing. So I think I was always wanting to teach and it's the same thing Mm -hmm. as directing. So even as a kid, when you play school, when I was really little, I realized now when I look back, I was always playing the teacher, even like Mm -hmm. seven or eight years old. So yeah, I, I just, it's something I had to do, but I never play, I could never back then, and even still to this day, play the game the way you're supposed to play it, which that's okay. No, you know, the outsider status, it's a, it's a, you know, it's something that I'm shedding because mm-hmm. it's just another, you know, label, but, right. but it, 
it helped me to overcome insecurities and feeling less than because when you, because as a woman in this business, I mean, I, yeah, I've had, I've lost, yes, I have had those experiences. I've lost gigs because of it. I've been treated different. I've been paid less. I was a showrunner. I made a third less than the males made. It's like I could, I have a list and they know who they are. (laughs) (laughs) But you persevered. persevered. Yeah, always. You kept kept going. That's, here's the thing I'd say to anyone who wants to do their art. And it doesn't matter whether it's documentary or narrative or you're a painter. You have to have the three Ps, patience, perseverance, but most importantly, passion. Mm-hmm. That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Carlisle, any, anything in your journey, uh, women role models, that, uh, that perseverance going ahead, even in an industry that's challenging, be an artist in general, well, you know, coming from Texas, I, I did have that sense of independence. And the reason I moved to New York, much like Janice, I needed to get out of Texas at the time. Mm-hmm. I needed to get away from home and start being my own self. And so my ping-ponging around in a pinball machine, I did not have a straight track like Janice knew that. Um, and so there were women, strong women, whether they were film characters or women in books or a lot of singers. I mean, there were a lot of, of Patty Smith. Um, yep. To tell you this, I know you probably will laugh, but Anne Margaret was a really big, um, somebody I really thought a lot about because I was amazed what she did with her career. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were just people like that, women like that along the way. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I've always just done my own thing. So, starting making art later in life and becoming a beekeeper later in my life in my forties, just after I moved back to Houston, just kind of fell in naturally with me and for me. And yet at this, and I was also still um, going to the movies and, and looking at art and also always looking, seeing what the women were doing. How are they doing that? You know, what was their story? What was their trajectory? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Love that. So let's talk about Molly. Um, first, I'm curious, Janice, as a documentary filmmaker, how do you pick a topic? How do you say, okay, this is a story I want to do a movie about? And, and how did it happen in Molly Ivan's case? Okay, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, you know, Molly, so I will, Molly came to me through our other producing partner, James Egan. But I was, you know, I, going back on role models I and, and mentors, as I've done projects and, and certain, unfolded certain things and learned along the way, there are people in doing the research. And what I discovered is that, yeah, you could say that Molly Ivins is a role model for me in mm-hmm. so many ways that, that I, I, I can't, so I'm going to be, you know, as we like to say, all the facts, man, just the facts. I knew nothing about Molly Ivins. Mm-hmm. When James told me in 2012, in like, I don't know, April and May of 2012, he called me up and he said, uh, you need to go see this play, Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins. Um, it's closing this week and it's at the Geffen Playhouse and you need to go see it. I said, 
why? (laughs) (laughs) Because I had to last week and now you have to. And I I said, okay. He said, Kathleen Turner starring in it. You've got to go see it. And uh, I laughed my ass off. I was blown away by the material. Mm-hmm. I was blown away by Molly. The material is Molly. Her words, her humor. I mean, oh my God. I, I, I just, it was so funny that I came home and I Googled her till two or three in the morning. And <laughs> there was at the, thank God we had the internet. Um, there were a bunch of C-SPAN clips. I mean, I watched until I was too tired. And I just started looking up stuff. And I called James in the morning and I, I said, she's amazing. He goes, nothing's been done. I said, nothing's been done. He said, yeah. He goes, I went to see it. I went backstage. I, I spoke to Kathleen. Yeah, the, the play was the first thing that had been done on Molly. And James knew, James came to the play because the playwrights are the Engel sisters. They're twin sisters. We okay. all have the same last name, by the way, spelled the same way. Right. Okay. You, but not, they're not related. That, no, we're not. It was maybe some shtetl, like several generations back. But no, mm-hmm. we're not related. And, and. I, you know, our joke became, you know, my joke became that Molly has been doing her bidding down here. You know, she's kind of been, you know, putting the people together. I mean, you know, because angle and it means angel, you know, so I just like to say Molly, three angels doing her bidding for. This season of our podcast is made possible with the support of TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs. Confidently building your business takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools and resources. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaboration-based approach. They work with both internal and external partners that can provide education, financing, mentoring, and community support. TD employees are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. They can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, or mentorship. And they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. And um, and within a week, I think we had a green light. And that was going to be my question. So when you started this project, because if it took six years and a half, you started having these conversations, what was it, seven years ago, eight years ago? Yeah. Did you know at that time, were you aware of the timing, the political uh, connotation. Did you did you think that this movie would be coming out at a time where it would have such an impact in terms of the political conversations, the political situation that we find ourselves in, uh, in North America, but especially in the States? When we started this, Obama had just been elected for a second term. And I'll right. tell you what's so interesting is that no matter how hard we tried, we grants and we, you know, we did our own. Carlisle and I raised money a lot. We would do our fundraisers. We were a great tag team together. You know, we, our first fundraiser, we were at 17 grand. Yeah, baby. And we were on, it was like we kicked off that we were on the road. I mean, five weeks after the green light, I was in Texas shooting our first six interviews with Carr. And we had our first fundraiser at Jim Hightower's, you know, office, the Church of Hightower, which isn't a church. And uh, we raised 17K. And we were, wow. Um, (laughs) At that time, Obama was in office. And it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I had lots of contacts because I'd been a showrunner. I actually used to have agents um, and stuff. And so I went to certain media companies and we pitched Molly. I I created a a sizzle. We had a really nice presentation, a package. And people who loved her Mm -hmm. came back and 
I'll just tell you one, but it basically sums it all up. Um, it's a biopic and she's dead. Who cares? Wow. <laughs> okay. okay. So not, not the reception you would have No, because, for. you know, we were, the progressives were in charge and there is, there, I'm going to tell you, they've, the progressives got their comeuppance. Janice, why did you feel that Molly's story was so important to get out? I mean, I know you watched a play, you were Carlisle, you already knew her as a, as a Texan. Why did you feel it was so critical that more people get to hear her story? Because she is more relevant probably today, even than when she was alive. I know I've gotten some flack for that, but because, mm -hmm. because she was incredibly prescient and she was a student of history and um, history repeats itself, but not just that Molly, um, was a real populist. She's a progressive populist. And people don't understand what populism, what it sprung from. Populism. I got, actually went to Populism University, schooled to me by Molly Ivins and Jim Hightower. One was dead, one's alive, but they both um, schooled me. Um, populism came out of the hard scrabble folks of Texas, really mm -hmm. against the multi at the time the multinational corporations, which were the railroads, and mm -hmm. they couldn't get a leg up. And so populism is about the people. It is top to bottom. It is not left to right. And Molly, you know, so much of what she wrote and said back in the 70s, but particularly the 80s when she got her column, 80s and 90s is happening right now and is never more relevant than it is right now. You know, it's not left to right. It's top to bottom. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. Always also, also in there, but, but one of the things also is she talked about with, W being president, with Shrub being president, the three things that she was seeing was religiosity, a display of religiosity, machismo, and anti-intellectualism. We've got that going on that right now. That pretty true today. She saw it in Texas when he was the governor of Texas. She saw mm -hmm. that it was going to metastasize out when he became the president, and that mm -hmm. is what we're still saddled with today. And I want to ask you about the film's reception. So when it came out stateside, what, and I mean, what did you expect? Did you, did you think people would get it? They would go with Molly's story and, you know, tell me about kind of that when the first feedback started coming in when critics saw it, uh, you know, what the, the first reviews that, that got to you, what was that like? Well, let me, the thing that we figured at Sundance, the Sundance audience was going to love it. Right. Yeah. We just knew that. But the mm -hmm. thing that really moved me was there was a woman after our first screening, we did our Q&A, and there was a woman that said, I'm in Michigan. I'm, you know, uh, surrounded by people with ideology not like mine. And I've been very depressed. And now I'm ready to go back out and be an activist. Remember that, Janice? And she was probably older than us. And she was, the film fired her up. And I, that was like, okay, bingo. Great. This is what we want. This is what we're going for. And Goal so, achieved. Yeah. And so for me, I mean, as a Texan, I was very excited. I mean, the whole team, we were excited. We kept getting great responses. And and Janice has got a, a she's got a great story about two girl, young nine year old girls. But I will say when it opened in Texas, um, because we were at Sundance and then we were at South by which, and they loved it at South by in Austin. And then it took us a while and then we got our distribution deal. And so when we officially opened the reception in Houston, it was so great. 
Uh, Janice was in Austin when we were when I was in Houston, so we were tag teaming. James couldn't come to Texas, and the reception for both of these towns when it had its proper theatrical re release was amazing. I mean, people were crying and people were clapping and people were stopping me and telling me stories about Molly, and and it was really really satisfying. And then people were coming back two and three times. They were bringing their children. They were bringing their grandchildren. I mean, we were hearing it from, I heard friends of mine in the recovery community that were talking about what a great story it was for recovery. And so their whole recovery community was going out to see the film. Mm -hmm. it, it, I'll tell you, you know, we were on the festival circuit and um, people, we won audience awards. That was to me the best. We won the, I don't need to be, awards appear my peers you know I, I have a whole thing about awards i'm in the television academy so it's basically people you know yes people really vote for the the right ones but a lot of it's popularity and who you know um mm. at when it's the audience award them's the people the people have spoken we won the audience award at south by southwest um south by southwest exactly. sundance blew our i mean sundance was insane it got mm -hmm. we got rave reviews. The first, Hollywood Reporter was the first review that came out the night we opened, and it was read. We had a party afterwards, hosted by the Texas ACLU. It was a spectacular review, and then it just kept coming. We are ninety four on Rotten Tomatoes with fifty plus critics, a hundred a hundred percent by audience members. South by mm -hmm. Southwest, it was bringing Molly home to her stomping grounds. And that okay. premiere at South by Southwest, 11.30 a.m. in the morning at the Paramount Theater, Thousand Seat Theater, filled. And when it, so it opened. So here's another way here. My Molly's driving this bus. We get, we sign our deal with Magnolia. I remixed the film because I was not happy with the first mix. We, we did everything so fast. That was like a huge relief. Uh, in June, and everything's moving forward. And we find out it's going to roll out in August, late August, and they're going to do a whole, they did a whole special screening to, they were going to stream at first, a pre, you know, kind of like a get the buzz up. And, um, but it was going to open officially on August 30th across the great state. We get these dates in like July. And like, I don't know, a few days later, I'm looking at, I said, what? I knew I had to fly out earlier to do press with Carr, and we were doing this thing on the 28th with, with Rick Linkletter and all this other stuff. And I'm like, August 30th. And all of a sudden it goes, oh my God. I called somebody at Magnolia. I said, do you know what August 30th is? They said, yeah, we're opening Molly. I said, do you know what else is? No, what? What? I said, that's Molly Ivan's birthday. Y'all, y'all are <laughs> opening her film on her birthday. You, on her birthday. All Amazing. Out across the great state where she's from. You tell me who's driving this bus. <laughs> that is no coincidence. It's such a Molly <laughs> Ivins move. It was like she was sending us a signal. And I, you know, throughout the process of making this film, when I'd be alone in my, and Carlel knows my wormhole here, which I'm talking to you on where I cut most, where we cut this film. I, okay. I, um, I had lots of Molly experiences. I had dreams. I actually had her really give me a, a major, like, go forth, young woman. Um, old woman, middle-aged woman, go forth and make this film. I, I really, a passing of the baton. So I have felt at times, there was a time we were doing an interview in Texas. Carlisle was there with me. It was for Think, K-E-R-A, Think. And it was one of the most, it was such a, something that transposed, and it, Carlisle was on one headset. I was on another. I was being interviewed. Hmm. 
and there was another chair in the room. And I swear to God, she was, you could, we both had the same experience. She was there. You could, and I know people are going to go, woogie, woogie, you know, oh my God, she lives in LA, California. No, she she was, (laughs) she was in, she, she, her presence was there. So I, I talked to her quite often. I, I, Molly's driving this bus and um, she wants everybody to vote like your life depends on it because it does. Another question I would ask is if you had to pick one takeaway, one lesson from Molly's life, what would the main, the main one be? I'm sure, I'm sure there's many, you brought up a few anecdotes, but what would be the one lesson that's, that truly speaks to you? Uh, you know, she always said this road is hard. This road is tough. It's about never giving up. You cannot give up. You have to stick to it. You know, she says, you got to have fun while you're fighting for freedom because it might get to be the only fun you ever had. Now, that's a little bit hard to say right now in the scope of what we're in right now. But the one thing I noticed about Molly and, and, and she brings back is about civility. We can agree to disagree. You know, she'd say people get they get so anger about their side. They're 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 they look like you're gonna stroke out there, buddy. You know, your veins are popping out of your head. Your turkey gobbles are wobbling. You know, she she I'll tell you what Molly loved people. Her love of people, no matter where you came from, no matter what your economic station was in life, no matter who you know, your point of view was, yeah, I mean, she really had this love of humanity. And so for me, I, my big thing, my big, where I'm going in terms of my trajectory is about our shared humanity. And I think that Molly Ivins, it's very much in alignment with my whole take on where I need to be proceeding and going and what needs to be looked at is our shared humanity. And she came back to that, I think, quite often. She didn't state it like that. I'm stating it like that. <laughs> uh, Carlisle, for you, what's a, what's a Molly lesson that resonates? I, I, it really is keep fighting for freedom. It might be, you know, it might be the only fun you ever have. And, and the other thing is she would say, and it's a better way to live. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's true because that does take us back to our shared humanity without a doubt. Yeah. Mm, love that. Um, in closing, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests, so this is not specific to Molly or filmmaking, but what do you wish women would do more of? Well, what comes to mind without even thinking about it is stand up for themselves. Women, well, you know, we, we uh, need to, to stand up for ourselves and we need to uh, be at the table. Because basically we birthed the table. So, um, you know, it's time to be a sharing and a passing of the baton. Um, uh, The patriarchy has been in control of things for thousands of years. And that's not working out too well. For me, I would say stop apologizing for being a woman. Mm -hmm. Love that. Right on, Carr. Yeah. Stop apologizing for being a woman and know that that the power of creation is within as a woman. So embrace it, take it, run with it. And how do you both think Molly would have answered that question? What would she wish women were doing more of? 
I think she would be pretty damn happy with the number of women that are running for office and have won for office. So she would, I think she would say, get involved. You know, she said, you can't bitch if you don't. I was just going to go there. This is what she always said. You know, politics is not a picture on a wall or, you know, something you can turn the channel on TV. It's the warp and woof of our lives. And she said, you know, you know, those people up in Washington, those people up in your state capitals, you know, they're just the people we've hired to drive the bus for a while. You know, this is our deal. We run this country. We are the board of directors. We're the ones who own this country, not them. And I think people have forgotten that. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing Molly with us. Thanks for the, t- thanks for the time. I, I, I really grateful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, it makes a difference if you subscribe, uh, give us a review, give us some stars. Thank you to TD Bank Group Women Entrepreneurs for their support of The Brightest Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrightestfemale.com slash podcast and click on a TD logo. I look forward to speaking to you in a week with a new guest on the show. Take care. Yeah.